Whenever I hear that a new book is being released about the Twilight Zone, one of the first questions that comes into my head is what does this add to the story? And I don't mean that in a negative way, but I think it's a valid question, because after 60 years, what is there left to say? Now that's probably rich coming from someone who hosts a Twilight Zone podcast, but over that time we've had Mark Zickery's Twilight Zone Companion, we've had Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grimes Jr. And we've had Douglas Brody's book Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone to celebrate its 50th anniversary. And they're just a few, there are several more. And the good thing is, for the most part, they all add a little bit of a different thing to the whole conversation about the Twilight Zone. But with each new one, that becomes harder to do. But what about books about Rod Serling himself? Well, the obvious first go-to book is As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Serling, by his daughter Anne Serling. And if you think back to when Anne was on the show, she spoke about how there were other biographies out there, but she felt there were factual inaccuracies. And that was one of the reasons why she felt she needed to write her own book to kind of put those to rest. Now, ever since I had that conversation with Anne, I think I've been understandably wary of approaching other Rod Sailing biographies. And at the end of the day, that book is so definitive that is there anything else left to learn? Well, it turns out that actually there is. Today I'm going to be speaking to the author of a book called Unknown Sailing, An Episodic History, Volume 1, and the subtitle is The Bradbury, Kennedy, Pentagon and World War II Stories. The author is Amy Boyle Johnson and I'll speak to her in a moment. At the beginning of the book, Amy acknowledges that she's not treading the same ground as Anne Sailing, of course, how could she? And she doesn't try to. But what she's done is she has visited the Rod Sailing archives, spoken to people who have never really been spoken to before, and she's put together a piece of work that I think I have no question about its accuracy because she's going straight to the source with these things. As I'll say in the interview to Amy, she's usually either one person or one piece of paper away from Rod Sailing himself. Now, I'd never call myself an expert on rod sailing, but doing this show, I do feel that I know a thing or two. But I read this volume, and there was revelation after revelation that I just never heard before. And not only did it enlighten me about several things about rod sailing, but it also reinforced my belief in him as a good and decent and intelligent man. So I really do give this book a recommendation and I was really pleased when the author agreed to come on the show. So let's not wait any longer, let's have a listen to when I spoke to Amy Ball Johnston. Amy, thanks so much for joining me today on the Twilight Zone podcast. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, we're, we're here to talk about your book, Unknown Sailing, of which Volume 1 is out. But before we get to that, can you maybe give us a little background about you and what actually led up to you writing the book? Um, my last year in graduate school, I was interning at the George Eastman House of Film Preservation. Mm -hmm. And during a meeting, um, someone said there's never been any television writer as important as the lowliest film writer. Oh, right. And I disagreed and said, what about Rod Serling? And when I finished school, I wanted to teach. And so it's either publish or perish. So I wanted to write about non-Twilight Zone. So I found out where one of his archives was at, in the um, Historical Society of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And I went and did research for a week. And after a week, I thought, I have enough to start a book. So I started researching, and I've been doing it for about eight years. Before you even decided you were going to write the book, was there a particular thing that really hooked you into Rod Sailing at all? What amazed me was my I was at my stepmother's um, house, her the house she grew up in, and her father gave me a copy of Patterns. Mm. And it literally opened my eyes. I had no idea he'd done anything outside the Twilight Zone. And then as I started to research it, I realized what a great writer he was ever before he started Twilight Zone. And no one had written a serious book about Serling. Uh -huh. And I wanted to pursue that. And I also, on a personal level, I researched a lot of his World War II experiences. And I went to the reunions for the reunions of the 511th. Yeah. And I sort of felt like I was honoring my grandfather, who was a World War II vet who I'd never met, by listening to their stories. So There are a couple of Serling kind of biographies, but after... Speaking with Anne Serling, I haven't read any of them, and I don't think I ever will after what she said, yes. um, obviously, apart from her book. So for anyone who hasn't come across your book yet, what makes your book different from what's come before? Well, the difference in the two biographies, which I do have problems with, is that it doesn't cover his personal life except for where it intertwines with his work. Mm. Um, it emphasizes this one on World War II, which not a lot has been written about in Serling's influence, very briefly touched over on the two Twilight Zones, and I give it as a basis. I'm not aware of any publication besides one copy of Military History Quarterly that talks about the war games, which mm -hmm. I think is very important, especially today. And the Vietnam story blew my mind when I ran across that play, and I think it's very relevant. Mm -hmm. um, and it's even though it's about the 1950s, in some of the 60s, I think it's very relevant to today. I mean, you mentioned before that you visited all of the, the Rod Sailing archives. Now, for me, that sounds like, you know, the most amazing thing. Could you give us a flavor of, you know, what kind of volume of material are we, are we talking about here and what kind of material are in those archives? The largest archive is that I actually went to a total of over 30 archives for this project. Oh, wow. Um, I went to the Franklin Schaffner. I went to Alfred P. Jacobs um, in Loyola Marymount. Um, and I went to the Military War College archive. Um, at the three, um, certainly in the UCLA is the smallest. Mm. And I don't know why. In most of it is under only permission of the family. I see. And it's very minimal. It's nine boxes. And by that, I mean archival boxes, not banker boxes. Yeah. The Historical Society of Wisconsin is vast, and Serling himself donated that collection while he was alive. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love about, and I, I'm the daughter of a writer, so I understand the impulse of just boxing everything and shipping it off. Yeah. In the 
And some of the episodes, Sterling wrote notes before he submitted it to the archive. So on the copies of all the scripts of Loner, he wrote statements on it. Oh, wow. Almost like he was telling future researchers his own point of view. And one film that was that he was fired from, he actually wrote, I was fired from this job, hence all the rewrites, on a, on a film treatment called RPM, Revolutions Per Minute. Okay. So he was giving little hints and little nuggets to future researchers, which I appreciated. Yeah. That is vast. I went back to that archive three times. So the Ithaca College is only available by permission. Mm-hmm. And that now has some of his earlier work. That was donated after his passing, and that was given of what was held at the lake house on Cue the Lake. So we're talking about things like scripts here, uh, correspondence, that kind of thing? Scripts and correspondence. At the Historical Society, one of my favorite documents there, they have some earlier work, but it was a folder called Angry Letters, and it's <laughs> box one, folder three. Yeah. And it was letters that he wrote when someone accused him of supporting communism, or they said you should be concentrating on the Russians, not on poverty and the race issue. Uh-huh. And he wrote very terse responses, and they're brilliant <laughs> um, and very biting and to the point. Yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine. So, I mean, your book it, itself it is broken down very nicely into uh, different chapters. And, and I'd like to touch upon some of those, if I may. Yes. I watched um, Jason and Sonny Brock's Charles Beaumont documentary, and in it they spoke to Ray Bradbury about Rod Serling and his accusations of plagiarism. Um, and I was actually quite taken back by the strength of Ray Bradbury's anger on screen um, it, it, it's quite something to watch. Now, you actually spoke with Ray Bradbury, didn't you, about this very topic and presented them with some evidence to the contrary. So could you tell us about that conversation a little bit and what kind of reception you actually got from Ray when you, when you did that? When I interviewed Ray, I had spoke with him on the phone a couple of times and he had trouble hearing me. I'm in based in Rochester, New York, and he said, um, why don't you come by the house? And I explained to him where I was, and so I flew up the next week to meet mm. with him. And it was the year he won the Pulitzer, yeah. and he was awarded the Pulitzer. So I had the letters that Serling had written about Beaumont and Bradbury, and I had also reviewed for the Philadelphia Inquirer the Bradbury Chronicles, mm. where the first time the new accusations Bradbury had brought about plagiarism. And... So I had the letters, and when I was meeting with Ray Bradbury, near the end of the interview, I was afraid he would cut me off. Yeah. I brought up that I had these letters, and I'd emailed his, whoever was his assistant that I was going to bring these letters, and Ray Bradbury refused to look at them. Oh, wow. wanted me to send them to his, bio, his authorized biographer, Sam Weller, mm. which I told him that's not the way it would work. After he responded... Then I could share them with Sam Weller if Sam Weller had any information. But I, I wanted Bradbury's response, not Sam Weller's. Yeah. And in, in the letters that I have, it details an accusation about George Clayton, George Clayton Johnson. And the next two days, I had lengthy lunch with George Clayton Johnson, and we talked about the plagiarism. Mm. And he did not agree with Bradbury's position. And what amazed his recent his new accusation. And what amazed me was Bradbury did have a claim against George Clayton John plagiarism. 
and it was discussed in the letters. And Bradbury never held it against George Clayton Johnson, and they had a very good friendship. Hmm. So I found that a bit of a contradiction in Bradbury's terms. Did you actually get to sit down with him at all and, and speak about it, or was it just a flat refusal? It was, I sat with Bradbury for two hours, and when I told him what the letter said, he refused to comment until Sam Weller got back to me. I see. I, I did inform him in very polite terms, and he was not interested in it. But it's a fascinating chapter anyway, very interesting reading. I think on an emotional level for me, chapters two and three really touched me, and chapter two is called Certain Honourable Men, and in it you write about Dean White, who served with Rod Sailing. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Dean White, it was a fluke. I was Googling, I was Googling um, the 511th, and I ran across Dean White, and I called mm. him. And he did serve with Sirlane, and they were in the foxhole together on Christmas Eve. Dean White was a really great Midwestern man who gave his time to me, and yeah. he told me the story, and he had no clue that that was actually the next day was Sirlane's birthday. Oh. And what amazed me was it was almost a sacred story to him. Yeah. Um, and it was about his youth. And there was a deep, not shame, but there was a deep guilt that he couldn't have celebrated with Serling. And then in chapter three, which is called Let Me Tell You About Death, you tell us about a document which is a story written by Rod Serling in which he features as a character. It was an absolutely fascinating read because it, it was, I mean, Serling's made a comment before, I think he was quoting someone else, but he speaks about a writer sitting down at his typewriter and bleeding. And reading that document, uh, what you put in the book, was kind of a really good illustration of that. You know, he was just pouring himself into this this thing. Can you tell us a bit about that document? And, and do you feel it was a sort of cathartic release for Rod Sailing writing it? I, I think it was. And when he was at Antioch College, he took a class specifically just for returning GIs. And his instructor was called Nolan Miller. Um, mm. When I traveled to Antioch College, Nolan Miller was still alive, and he gave me two or three lengthy interviews where he was, and one of the things he recalled was that the class he did specifically just for GIs, Serling was not originally accepted into that class. Right. And Serling went, and um, almost he sat in the office, and, he, and finally he said, Nolan Miller said there was nothing wrong with mechanics. Sterling, he just didn't think that he was very good telling narrative stories, um, which certainly actually is known for more dialogue than narratives. But certainly got into the class, and I believe this was a way for him to share and to literally cut it out. Another story he wrote while he was at Antioch, it's an incomplete story, it's more of a scene, is called Cut It Out, where there's an older GI at the college, and what he does is he gets drunk and no one wants to be around him. And he just says, can you cut it out of me? Can you cut it out of me? Um, and I love the opening where he says, I wrote this for my future children. And mm -hmm. Ann and Jody had never seen this document because it was just buried in the archive. And it was a great wow. pleasure of me. It was a great pleasure of mine to be able to give it to Ann. And then I gave Jody's through her mom, Carol. Um, yeah. But it's touching. And he says, you know, I want you to know these stories of war. By this point in the book, I I've learned so much already. And I'm learning more and more things that I never knew about Rod Sailing. There's this chapter on his work for the federal government, which is pretty amazing. But then there's a chapter called The Jeopardy Room, 
Now, by this point, if you'd have told me that Rod Serling had piloted the space shuttle, I'd have probably believed you because it, it's, it seems as the book goes on, um, we're just learning more and more amazing stuff about him. But the government actually asked Rod Serling to take part in war games, didn't they? Yes, yes. And I was fascinated by that. And it almost seemed surreal when I read the war game. Um, hmm. And he was asked to, under the Kennedy administration, he was writing Seven Days in May, the screenplay for Seven Days in May. And yeah. Kennedy was a huge fan of this. And Serling had asked the government for assistance in some documents already. And Serling had, um, so he knew about the federal government. They had requested letters um, of access to the White House. And so it makes mm -hmm. sense that he was invited. Oddly enough, one of the other members of the war game was the president of U.S. Steel who had a very tenuous past with Serling professionally. So at least yeah. the company did when it came to noon on doomsday. Um, but he right. was invited to the war game. He, we, we do not know whose team, who said what and what team. In order to there's no retribution, responses are anonymous, but we know that Serling served on the American side. It sounds like a movie in itself, you know, <laughs> they're putting all these people together in, in a kind of war game. Absolutely fascinating. What amazed me, the other thing was who was there. I was almost convinced that it would have been hidden from mm. what leaders knew about the war game, that they were hidden in this back room. Yeah. And I just want to read some of the, the Brigadier General Lucius D. Clay, the Chief of Staff wow. of the U.S. Army was there, and the Chief of Staff of the Air Force was there. So these were in the Vice Chief of Naval Operations. So... These were head-up guys in the military. These were not someone in the office who thought it'd be really cool to have Milton Caniff and Rod Serling show up at the Pentagon. Throughout your research, you know, you, you've read so many documents and spoken to so many people who knew him that you're essentially one person or, or a piece of paper away from the man himself all the time. Do you start to feel that you kind of know him yourself in a way? And was there anything that kind of surprised you about him as a person? When I didn't know Serling beyond the image I saw of him as a child of the Twilight Zone and then later Night Gallery. And in fact, mm. I was a child that was prone to nightmares. So my older sister, Susan, would have to literally sneak me to watch the Twilight Zone with her. And, and Night Gallery did give me nightmares, so I wasn't permitted to watch that. Um, so I didn't know anything on the cigarette smoker who introduced the stories. Um, <laughs> what surprised me so much was his fervent belief in the American principles of free speech, particularly. And mm. I was amazed when I interviewed people at his WLW that even then when he was the, the, um, the newest writer, he defended the right of an African-American janitor who wanted to work at the radio station as a as a speech actor and they wouldn't let him and Serling would go in and ask again and again for him to at least have an interview and Serling had a high sense of morals that I believe in and he advocated for those even when it came against the cost of professionalism of his professional career what I loved about it was there's no way you can spend eight years researching someone if you either don't think they're a horrible person or a great guy uh, <laughs> You know, you either want to prove a point or you want to embrace him. Every time I read, read more and more of Sterling's words, many of which were never published or I'd read letters, 
I realized he had a deep conviction of humanity, of what mm. what was what was right without telling us. And I believe I state this in the opening of the book. One of the reasons why I wrote about his career and not his personal life was Serling didn't write Father Knows Best. He didn't write Marty. Serling wrote about anxieties that face mankind and in a culture. And so mm -hmm. Serling wrote about our social selves. So I didn't think it was fair to tread into his personal life, except for his World War II experiences and how they came about. Yeah, yeah. Serling, when you, read, when you look at Monsters on Maple Street, when you look at The Shelter, it still pertains to us. So Serling was speaking to us as smart individuals who wanted to see almost a sense of justice, but a sense of representation of anxiety. He was, I believe the Twilight Zone was the first existentialist TV show. I do not consider it science fiction. I consider it a form of existentialism. And, uh, and that's something you go into a bit more in the second book, is that right? Yes, the second volume is the leading up to the Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. So much has been about the Twilight Zone that I don't think I can add to it, but I think I can lead up to it. I have a different theory, um, which is fine, than Mark Zekri and a couple other writers about the beginning of the Twilight Zone. I believe that Serling started to work on what would later become the Twilight Zone as early as 1949 when he was still at Antioch. I don't, oh, think, wow. it was, I don't think it was an accident that he started to turn to this. I believe he was writing fantasy type stories when he was still at Antioch and he in fact couldn't do it for many years. And, and in fact, the first time he was given an option to write his own TV program, he did what he had done when he had no censorship. So it was just outlining the 10 years before the Twilight Zone. And I was able to, when I went to, one of the times I went to Cincinnati, I met the voice actor who was in the original Time Element when it ran on WLW. And he had, the script. Oh, wow. he let me go through his basement and he had kept all these scripts in uh -huh. the time element. And he had kept, when he worked for WLW, he worked for Serling wrote a radio program, a comedy about two women that worked in a complaint department in a department store called leave it to Kathy. <laughs> Serling was not a very comedic writer, um, but <laughs> he gave me all these scripts from the 1950s. So during the course of your research, things like that, you, you have read a lot of documents, a lot of um, unproduced things, or maybe things that have been produced and kind of lost to time. So did you come across any anything in particular that you just read and thought, my God, I wish this was known more, or I wish someone could do something with this and, and actually put it out there because it's just so good? The original Planet of the Apes blew my mind. Um mm -mm. I was not, I'm, I'm still not a huge fan of Planet of the Apes. I, um, my brothers, I can feel them cringing when I say that. Um, <laughs> it, and then when I read the first script of Planet of the Apes, I realized Serling did not write Planet of the Apes. He filled his contractual agreement where he was going to give co-writing credit. The original Planet of the Apes was a very sensitive, cultural thing about the role of man and the other. Um, in the original Planet of the Apes, Serling had dressed apes in modern-day clothing, and it's almost a modern-day Washington, D.C., where there oh, were yeah. ape policemen yeah. and there were ape department stores. And at one point, the man goes out and gets goes to a nightclub and gets absolutely hammered. And on the drive back, the cab driver, he, the man looks at the cab driver, the ape, and says, buddy, to you, I look like the wrong end of a banana. 
but given time and understanding, we'll see each other for who we are. Um, You contrast that versus get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape. Mm. Um, Sterling had wrote a very thoughtful film that still hasn't been made. And I would love to see that. So, or at least given a public reading. Well, I, I think in this in this day and age as well, people you know do things like comic books, even or you know animation. Even if someone wouldn't make it into a movie, which is unlikely considering. I mean, I, I read it the other day, and um, it's really interesting. I think tonally, the only bit where that kind of spun my head a little was with the robot at the end, because that, I was so wasn't expecting that. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I think it, it's really a very interesting thing and it, it would be nice to see it on screen in some way. Yes. And the, the, one of the cool things that I have a rule that no matter how tired you are, if an archivist ever says, Hey, you want to see something, Yeah. you, you wait and you look at it. And, um, I was at the Franklin Shafter archive and there were two archivists and it was in the middle of summer. And they said, hey, you want to see something really cool? And I was absolutely exhausted. Um, I'd been sitting there photocopying all day. And I was like, yes, absolutely. And they brought out the original oil paintings from when they tried to sell Planet of the Apes. Wow. When they had no script, they just had the book. And it was probably one of the biggest nerd moments of my life (laughs) when I looked at it. And it was amazing of what they were trying to promote versus what ended up actually happening. I mean, I, I haven't asked you much about volumes two and three because I am hoping that maybe you'll come back in the future when they're out and and we can dig into them a bit more. But volume three is um, is very much to do with Planet of the Apes, isn't it? Yes, and it has to do with a lot of his about the politics of the time, and it has mm-hmm. to do with the getting along with the other. It also involves the he wrote a the pilot for a series that went nowhere called The New People for Aaron Spelling. And so it has to do with the college uprisings. It has to do with race relations and the new generation where Serling really, Serling gave a huge amount of speeches in the late sixties, early seventies to students. And it was very clear he was worried about the Vietnam war and the divisiveness that he saw growing even deeper in the American culture. He was always concerned, particularly then that we weren't listening to each other, that at a minimum you could have your own beliefs but you had to listen and consider the other person's point of view. Well, if if anything's relevant uh, now, I think that really is. It's That's kind of the world we live in at the moment, isn't it? Not much yes. has changed. For anyone listening who, like me, wasn't able to attend the recent Twilight Zone Comes Home celebration in Binghamton, could you tell us a bit about that, what your involvement was, and maybe give us a bit of a flavor of the event as a whole? It was actually really nice. The, the organizer of the event was Nick Parisi, who has a book coming out mm. next year called Dimensions of Imagination. And I want to say it's, public, it's going to be published by University of Mississippi or Missouri. I apologize for not knowing. Um, Nick Parisi did a lot of it. It was to acknowledge the Facebook group of the Twilight Zone. Um, yeah. It was, I would say, 200 people attended. They screened some Twilight Zones. There was a question and answer panel. And both Jody and Anne gave a reading, which was very touching. And mm. it was a nice way to celebrate Sterling in his hometown. Because usually... Conferences have been run through Ithaca College, where Sterling taught, and I want to say it's been five years or four years since the last Sterling conference. So it was nice to do something in Binghamton. Yeah, and and you yourself, you 
you've become quite a spokesperson for Sailing's work and the Twilight Zone, haven't you, over the years since you've started this journey yourself, haven't you? Yes, and at the Sterling conferences, um, they were always very gracious. Um, when I when the first Sterling conference, I, I spoke at I spoke at all Sterling conferences, but the first one, Tony mm. Alperell and I did a presentation on noon on Doomsday, and that was the year that Obama was running. So that was perfect. Yeah, yeah. Timing. So. Um, yes, Ithaca College has been very kind to me, and then I'm now on the board of directors of the Rod Tilly Memorial Foundation, and they've directed some questions my way. So I'm very grateful for that, and the family um, has acknowledged me. So there's a, there's no greater honor than that. Is that's wonderful, Amy? I, you know, I do this podcast and I review the Twilight Zone shows and I present what trivia I can, but. You know, I'm always conscious that I'm standing on the shoulders of people like Martin Grams Jr. and Mark Zickery who have done the research at Source and produced such good work because it's something that sadly I can't do. But I'm so happy to have discovered your book and, you know, I, I really count it now with that kind of work as something really definitive so i just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today and i really hope you'll come back and speak to me again about the next two volumes in the future absolutely thank you what a fascinating person amy is and i want to thank her again for coming on the show and giving us that insight into her process and i think you'll understand now why i'm so confident of the accuracy of what's in this book because it's so well researched and so well presented that I don't think there's any doubt that this is a really really excellent piece of work so it's called Unknown Sailing an Episodic History Volume 1 now Amy told me that Volumes 2 and 3 she's hoping to have out before the end of the year before December so that's something to look forward to but I really think that this first volume is a great start and I recommend you get hold of it for your Twilight Zone and Rod Sailing collection. So that's enough from me. If this is the first time you've came to the Twilight Zone podcast to listen to Amy's interview, then I do hope you stick around, go back into the archives over at thetwilightzonepodcast.com and maybe enjoy some of my past interviews, some of my reviews of Twilight Zone episodes and some of the other little things I do on the show. But thank you for listening. Next time I'll be looking at the episode It's a Good Life and I will speak to you soon.